0: It's Halloween Day. It's 1985. It's at a middle school in Indiana, somewhere in Indiana, and four friends have decided to dress up for Halloween in matching costumes. And then this happens. Wait, hold up the proton blaster. All right, and uh, turn the light. Nerd. Shut up. No wonder you only hang out with boys, Erica. Just the facts Oh my God, I love this costume. Okay. All right, that's the last one. No, just one more. Come on, please. Ah, can I go to school? Wait, wait, wait. Okay, say who are you gonna call? No. <laughs> What? Why are you Venkman? Because I'm Venkman. No, I'm Venkman. Why can't there just be two Venkmans? Because there's only one Vinkman in real life. We planned this months ago. I'm Venkman, Dustin stands. you're Egon, and you're Winston. I specifically didn't agree to Winston. Yes, you did. I don't think he did. No one wants to be Winston, man. What's wrong with Winston? What's wrong with Winston? He joined the team super late. He's not funny, and he's not even a scientist. Yeah, but he's so cool. If he's cool, then you'd be Winston. What? I can't. Why not? Be- because. Be- 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 because you're not black? I didn't say that. You thought it. I didn't say that. Guys? Guys! Guys! Why is no one else wearing costumes? When do people make these decisions? Everyone dressed up last year. It's a conspiracy, I'm telling you. Be cool. Who are we gonna call? The Nerds! And you feel for them, right? Raise your hand if you're a middle schooler. Raise your hand. We see you. Middle schoolers, we love you. We remember what it was like to be in middle school. It's tough to be in middle school. Raise your hand if it's tough to be in middle school. Of course it's tough. Everything's changing everybody's changing, suddenly feel this strong need to fit in, to find your place, to find your posse, to find your people, and what you're most terrified maybe is feeling different, in feeling out of place, out of step, and feeling strange. The last thing you want to do is feel strange, and the thing is, it doesn't just, it's not just true of when you're in middle school, it's true of all of us, it's, it's true of, old people like me we're afraid of being strange we're afraid of feeling strange and we take all sorts of measures not to feel that way as I said at the beginning of our worship service this country has been ravaged by all manner of things and now it feels a great deal of anguish over what we've seen too vividly and firsthand and in all that strife we are starting a new series this morning we're going to listen to the book of first peter and in that strife at risk of sounding a little too light-hearted in light of the devastation that has come across our country in recent weeks i think that silly little clip has something rather poignant and profound to say that both prepares us to hear this letter but also speaks to the moment that we're all facing peter is writing in this letter to a bunch of fledgling churches who are utterly in the minority. There, was, there could be no other way. The, the church was too new for it to be in any other way. They're in a minority. And in that moment, they are all suffering unjustly at the hands of those who think them strange, at the hands of those who think them unfamiliar, if not dangerous. And that was just the nature of their being. And, and that feeling that that being strange is something that is true for every church at every time and every place. Tara Isabella Burden, I've mentioned her before, she made it pretty clear when she says, alienation, that feeling of not quite belonging is integral to Christian identity. There is no way around not feeling strange. It's the nature of what it means to believe. And for Peter... What he's out to do is to give those fledgling churches encouragement, those who are feeling strange, and and to let them know that they are strangely equipped to face the injustice that is before them. Strangely equipped, unusually equipped. What Peter writes personally to them, I think you might say that Peter could write personally to us, not merely how we are strangely equipped to face injustice done toward us, but how we are strangely equipped to face injustice wherever it lurks, from wherever it proceeds. And it all comes down to how we understand ourselves in light of Him. We're gonna listen just to two verses, the first two verses of this letter, but in those two short verses we're gonna hear three marks of our identity that strangely equips us to face this moment and to face any moment of injustice. And those three marks are this, our beginning with God, our citizenship in God, and our calling from God. Our beginning with him, our citizenship in him, and our calling from him. So don't blink, these two verses will go fast. 1 Peter 1, one through two. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This This is is the word of the Lord. Lord. You may be seated. I went fast. I told you it was going to be fast. The first thing that makes us strange, if you will, and makes us strangely equipped to face this moment is our beginning with God. And what I mean by that is what how Peter, first the first word that Peter uses to describe those to whom he is writing. This church, these fledgling churches, uh, they're all strewn about what is now Turkey um, and and what what was then Asia Minor. Uh, Several churches, we don't know when they were planted, but they've been around for a while and Peter is writing to them. And the first word he uses to describe them is that they are elect. Uh, that they were chosen, and that they were picked, uh, that it was not sort of a random occurrence that they ended up uh, becoming part of the early Christian church, that they were chosen. And uh, it's, it's, it's certainly not random in the way that he pairs that idea with what he says there in verse two about how they were elect according to the foreknowledge of God who is the Father. Now that word foreknowledge doesn't show up in too many places in the New Testament. It does not refer to the idea that God sort of knew what the future would hold. Uh, Foreknowledge means he actually willed what the future would be. Uh, One of the more profound moments in which this Greek word for foreknowledge shows up in the New Testament is when Peter is giving a sermon elsewhere in the book of Acts, and he says to all the Pharisees that are listening to him on Pentecost in Acts 2, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God didn't simply see that Jesus Christ, the Son, would die. It was according to his plan that that was the way the future unfolded. It was not a random occurrence that God foresaw. It was an occurrence that God ordained. And what is true of Jesus is true of anyone who has come to believe in him. That decision... Your life before God began with a decision of God for you before there ever was a you. There was nothing in you, impressive about you, nothing that you did that would lead him to make that choice. You are elect simply on the basis of his own work. Now, if you say that in mixed company, that you're a member of the elect, Um, at the very least, you will feel like a kid in a Ghostbusters costume where nobody else is wearing anything like that. But if you press a little further into it, it's not just a moment in which you feel strange. It wouldn't be surprising to have people think that you're rather arrogant for thinking that about yourself. How dare you put yourself into some sort of special category that you are a member of the elect? Isn't that a recipe for making oneself feel rather arrogant. You, you might think that on its face, and yet it's the earliest moments of the church, at least in Jerusalem, who it says in Acts chapter 2, later there in Peter's speech, where the church found favor in the eyes of all the people. They weren't seen as arrogant, they were seen as profoundly humble. To believe that your life in God began with the decision for you before there ever was you is meant to encourage, if not instill, a profound sense of humility. Why? Why would that be the case? Why humility? One, it has a certain heritage to it. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses is explaining to Israel what is to account for for why they were liberated from Egypt and why they are a people unto themselves. And he says in chapter seven, verse six, you're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you for you were the fewest of all peoples But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Their election, their calling, their being chosen had nothing to do with what was in them, but had everything to do with his promise. And that has to encourage in us a certain measure of humility. Because there's nothing in us that impressed him. There was nothing in us that made us deserving of it. It was entirely on the basis of his choice. Why, why elaborate? Why, why, why belabor that point? Because there is no better truth to believe when it comes to our moment because it has everything to say about how we see ourselves and one another. At the bottom of all prejudice, at the bottom of all racism and any form of injustice, is a baseless, incoherent, toxic belief in one's superiority, in one's entitlement to feeling a certain greater deservedness of something than someone else does. But that is to believe that. To go in that direction is to to arrogate to oneself a certain importance that one has no right to claim. And it is to deny the dignity of another person that was actually ascribed to them by no less than God. Because long before Deuteronomy 7, there was Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, when God is out to make humanity, he says, let us make man in our own image. Humanity's very identity and his dignity is wrapped up in the fact that they were created by the one who is the author of all things. That image-bearing is the very nature of where we get our dignity from. And to deny that, to deny that dignity in another is to vandalize their personhood. Can you see why we are strangely equipped to face this moment when we recognize that we are those who are elect for no other reason than God's choice and that we have a dignity for no other reason that we are made in His image? And you know who had to struggle with that? You know how to learn that? The one who's writing this letter. A few weeks ago, we we listened to Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. Chapter later, in Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter... uh goes up for a nap on top of this house and in his nap he has this vision and this blanket is brought down and it's a bunch of foods that according to the Old Testament were considered unclean and he hears a voice that says take and eat and Peter thinks this is a joke right I'm being set up where's the camera right and he says I won't do it until it happens three times until finally the Lord says to him don't call uncommon what I have made clean. What's with the vision? Why is Peter suddenly being brought up to speed on how God no longer thinks that those unclean foods are unclean? Why? Because coming down the road, up from a road, is a Gentile by the name of Cornelius, a Roman centurion who's had his own vision that he's going to go find this guy named Peter, and Peter's going to fill him in on some stuff. Cornelius shows up, Peter meets, Peter and Cornelius talk, and by the end of it, Peter is convinced of one thing, that he says, now I am convinced that God shows no partiality. And in that moment, he comes to understand that these Gentiles, whom Jews had looked up with a certain suspicion, are now as much, have as much access to the throne of grace in Christ as anyone else, even if they're Jews. Now, Peter struggled with that. Peter might have learned it on that day, but later on down the road, Paul's got to rebuke him to his face because Peter has forgotten about what is the basis of our access to God. But Peter learns it. Peter wrestles with it, and that's why he can speak to us. And that's why he speaks to them. He's out to encourage these folks, this minority community who is suffering injustice, and he's out to remind them, you are chosen of God. Take heart in that. But in a slightly different way, the same thing that he says to them, he says to us that we take, perhaps, for a different purpose this day, and that is to know that if we're chosen, then we have no other, no other reason than but to be humble. And to see ourselves with humility, and to see the beauty and the glory of another. Your beginning with God is a function of His choice, which raises a second question: chosen for what? chosen, second of all, for a citizenship in God. Why do I pick that word? At the same time that he speaks of them being elect, he also refers to them as exiles, which is a curious way of describing people you're writing a letter to. You're exiles. It means a foreigner. It means someone who lives in a place that is not really their homeland. He will speak it again later in 1 Peter 2. He'll say, you who are sojourners and exiles abstain from the passions of the flesh. He's referring to their nature as those who are resident aliens. They reside in a place, but it is not really their place. They are there, but they're not really home. They're from there, but they're not from there. And you might wonder why would he want to even bring that up. Well, it's because he pairs it with another phrase in verse 2. They are exiles not only because of the foreknowledge of God the Father but in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. All right. Big phrase, pregnant phrase, sanctification, big word. What it really means at bottom is being set apart. Being marked for something in particular, being To borrow another big word, to be consecrated. Um, Graduates, raise your hand. If you're a graduate of now high school or college, I congratulate you. Um, Despite all the things that you didn't get to take part in, maybe they were able to figure out a way for you to have a graduation ceremony. And if you did, what would you wear? You had the robe, you had the pointy hat, the mortarboard, you had the stoles. What did that all do? It marked you. It set you apart. It said, this is what you've done. This is what you've accomplished. But it also set for you what is is ahead of you now on the basis of what you've learned. You were set apart. You were consecrated. You were sanctified. What Peter is out to tell this fledgling church and us all is that anybody who is in Christ has been set apart by no less than the Spirit of God. And as exile, set apart from the Spirit, you may... You may live in Pontus or Bithynia or or Cappadocia. You may live in Hendersonville or Arden or Asheville or Fletcher or wherever that might case be, but that's not really your home. It's not your mailing address is not your truest place of citizenship. It's not your deepest allegiance. It's not your deepest form of submission. It's not your deepest loyalty. What Peter says here in 1 Peter 1, Paul will echo in Philippians 3. He says, Your citizenship is from heaven, from which we await the Lord Jesus when he returns. He's not simply saying, Don't worry about anything here. You're just waiting for that other country. You're waiting for that other homeland. He's actually saying to us, Folks, where you are, it may be home in a sense, but it's not fully home. Your citizenship lies elsewhere, and what you're therefore signing up for, if you will, when you come to Jesus, when you believe that you've been chosen of God, is that you've been chosen to feel, to experience strangeness in a way. You've been chosen to experience feeling at times, out of step, to think and feel and act in ways that are a departure from the ways and and wiles of everything else around you. That's the nature of our strangeness. That's the nature of our being exilic. We have this exilic mindset that we've come to embrace. It's the nature of our identity. To choose to be out of line is sometimes needed as an exile. Now, it, it doesn't mean you don't have appreciation or love for where you live. I do, you do, many of us do. It only means this you should expect at times to bump into parts and to places of where you live in which your other allegiance has to kick in. In which your loyalty to where your true citizenship lies has to trump wherever you are. Whatever you might do, that is the exilic mindset. And that exilic mindset, I would argue, strangely equips you to face this moment. Because look, Whereas injustice and racism, as an example, it's committed by individuals, and sometimes it is very vividly seen, and surely we have seen that, it is also has a great capacity for subtlety. And it can operate in, in, in networks and in systems and things like that that you're not even aware of and, and and therefore it's, it's this, you feel this strong pull sometimes to just go along with the way things are and yet to have this exilic mindset that we embrace by virtue of our faith in him is to say I, I know there will be moments that I will have to step out of line and I will have to forsake what everybody else feels like to be so very natural and normal. That's the nature of an exilic mindset. And it equips you to face this moment and any moment in which injustice exists. Now, to live as an exile, to live at home in a place that is not really your home, it is not simply to sort of build a wall around you and and not to be concerned about anything where you are. And it's, it's not simply to kind of glory in your strangeness. It's actually to offer your strangeness. To offer your strangeness to a world that at some level might think you strange and you're okay with that. You don't try to mitigate your strangeness and you don't try to simply glory in it, you try to offer it. And, and where I take that is that uh, there's a the text that we read uh, earlier this morning in our Old Testament reading from Jeremiah 29. Uh, In that moment, Israel is in exile in Babylon, and it's for their sin, for their collective sin, for their collective repudiation of God's authority and love for them, he, by way of discipline, sends them into exile in a foreign country. But rather than they let that become a pretext for just sort of, uh, you know, taking care of their own hearts and only be concerned with their own world and building a wall of protection around them such that they sort of no longer have to deal with the outside world, it calls for a certain unique posture to where they reside. And you heard that spoken of in the passage from Jeremiah 29, where it said, if I can find it, it's in here somewhere, I promise. Well, I'll just look it up. Jeremiah 29 is speaking to the moment when Israel is being told what their marching orders are. And in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, the prophet says this, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't give up on a world that is not really your home, but actually seek its own welfare, for in seeking that country's welfare, you find your own welfare. That's the nature of what it means to be an exile. And that gets us to the last thing that I think Peter's out to tell this young, this young community. Yes, we have a certain beginning with God. Yes, we have a certain citizenship in God. But on the basis of what we just heard there from January 29, we also have a calling from God. That we're not simply elect, we're not simply exiles, but we're something else. We have a calling. And that calling, he says, is unto obedience to Jesus Christ. He says it as much. We are called, um, we are... uh, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to God who is the Son. And we should not be surprised to hear Peter say that. He'd heard it before. The first words out of Jesus' mouth that he hears when he was invited to follow him was, hey, follow me. And what Jesus later says in John chapter 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And in how many instances does somebody ask Jesus, you know, what are the greatest commandments? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. But one of the things that Jesus is quick to include when it comes to understanding what it means to love God and neighbor is what he says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23 when he pronounces the strongest, most stringent, and strictest woes upon them for what he feels like is a colossal exercise of theirs in missing the point And among the woes that he proclaims upon the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he says to them in this in Matthew 23, 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The weightier matters, justice, and mercy and faithfulness. That is the weightier matters, and that has all the weight of the whole storyline of Scripture behind it. When Abraham is first called to follow, What is the first thing that God says of Abraham about why he was called to begin with? It's in Genesis chapter 18, and it goes like this. Chapter 18, verse 19. For I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. By what? By doing righteousness and justice. The psalmist says as much in Psalm chapter 10. It goes like this, and it's put very... um, Very clearly and unequivocally in Psalm chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, it goes like this. Don't you wish I'd marked it better? I wish I'd marked it better. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his hand. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And of course, we all know that famous passage that we sing pretty often from the prophet Micah who says this, again, unequivocally. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus makes it rather plain that in obedience to him, in loving him and keeping his commandments, never far from those commands to obey, is to seek the way to your matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, look, um, I would imagine that most of you, if not all of you, nod your heads in agreement at that. I I do too. Uh, Who of us would not Agree that it's proper to have a certain humility by which we see ourselves and others. Who of us would not agree that it's necessary at times to uh, live into this exilic mindset and posture, such that sometimes we need to step out of line from where we see this home that we're in, um, get funky. And who of us would disagree that there are times in which we must realize that we've been called to an obedience? But it all comes down to this question: What will strengthen us for that? In other words, what compels? and sustains a humility that you need and a willingness to adopt an exilic mindset and to fulfill the calling. What sustains that? There's all sorts of motivations out there. What one compels and sustains? It's in the passage. You're, you're called not only um, in obedience to Jesus, but also it says, in the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied unto you. That's it. There's your motivation. No one is his. No justice is ever satisfied apart from the blood that he shed on our behalf. No one can know him and his goodness or ever desire him and desire to do as he does and follow him as he walks. Apart from the shed blood of Jesus. And in that shedding of blood, he gives us grace that is out to bring us peace. That's the gospel. It's in Acts chapter eight, the Ethiopian cabinet member, he's on his chariot, he's stopped to read, he's reading the book of Isaiah, along comes Philip and Philip says, what are you reading? And he says, I'm reading of the prophet. And in that text in Acts chapter eight, he quotes Isaiah and he says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And the Ethiopian asks Philip, is he talking about himself or about someone else? And Philip fills him in. That perhaps what Isaiah never dreamt of had come to fulfillment in who Jesus is. There was one who was denied justice, who suffered innocently to bring us grace that we might know his peace. That's the gospel. And so should you find the gospel motivating you, compelling you to seek justice insofar as you're able in a way that may be sacrificial and costly, you will be seen as strange. Strange for the impulse of self-forgetfulness. But it will only be so strange, it won't be so strange until you realize that it's with the understanding that one has suffered unjustly in order to bring you grace, in order to satisfy all justice. And if you're the victim of injustice, when it is the gospel that motivates you to seek it, instead of revenge, you'll be seen as strange. You'll be following a strange impulse, a strange desire to exercise self-restraint in the quest for a justice. And that will be because you believe there was one who suffered an injustice who is out to secure a justice that this world has never seen yet. And that is our hope. And that is what allows us to face this moment with courage. Beloved, we are in strange and awful times. But we've been given a strange and beautiful identity through what he has done on our behalf. To which I think Peter might say each to one of us, Don't be afraid to be strange. Amen.